Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me this morning to Hebrews chapter 10, where we continue our study of this epistle of God's Word, and we come to chapter 10, verse 25. Our text is Hebrews 10. We'll be considering, with the Lord's help, the 25th verse. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as ye see the day approaching. One of the remarkable, I think, wonderful evidences of the biblical wisdom that is reflected in our Westminster Confession of Faith is that not only does it contain a chapter that is devoted to worship, not only does it contain a chapter devoted to the church, a chapter devoted to various aspects of the church, including church government, But among others, in those brief number of chapters, there's a whole chapter given to the communion of the saints. A whole chapter in the confession devoted to the communion of the saints. And this reflects, I believe, the tenor of Scripture itself. It reflects the balance and emphasis that we find uh, within the Bible. The importance of the doctrine of the communion or fellowship that God's people have together in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that here in the passage that we've been considering in Hebrews. We looked last week at verses 23 and 24, our attachment to the truth and our attachment to one another. And that continues in verse uh, 25. In verse 24, we were told, you know, let us study one another. Let's, let's look carefully and study one another for the purpose or to the end or in order to stir one another up to love and to good works. Well, in order to do that, you actually have to be together. We actually have to be together in order to study one another and in order to stir one another up. And so it goes on in verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Verse 25 uh, needs to be connected both directions, both to what precedes it and what follows it, what comes before it, what comes after it. And I think we're, we're in danger of error if we take verse 25 and connect it exclusively in one direction or another. So there are those who would come to verse 25 and would see it as you know, attached to, to verse 24, rightly, but would merely think of it in terms of attendance at public worship. And so it's restricted to to that main focus, if you will. That is a fault, I believe. But then also you have, on the other hand, those who detach it from verse 24 and attach it exclusively to verse 26 and all that follows after that, right? The the whole warning about uh, apostasy. And so then they come to verse 25 and say, well, verse 25 has nothing to do with the church gathering together. It's really talking about the abandonment of the Christian religion. It's it's merely a a reference to apostasy. And this is attractive, especially to those who are separatists or who have inclinations to the present day. 
in that direction. But that latter conclusion is not reflected in our own confession. So, for example, uh, this verse is used as a proof text in chapter 21, which is on worship, and in paragraph 6, where, we, where it says, so more solemnly in the public assemblies, which are not carelessly or willfully to be neglected or forsaken, when God by his word or providence called thereunto. And then they use this Hebrews 10 verse 25 as support for that doctrine. And you see it again in the chapter on communion of the saints in chapter 26, verse paragraph 2. Saints by profession are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and performing uh, such other spiritual services to t as tend to their mutual edification. And here too we have them referencing Hebrews chapter 10. And so uh, those who are inclined toward separatism and think, well, this is just about apostasy. We don't have to worry about actually the, the formal gathering of the church um, are misguided, I believe, in their uh, thinking. No, verse 25 needs to be connected to both. It needs to be connected in both directions. And clearly, I believe it is. It is a continuation of the thought of verse 24 as we'll see uh, more clearly in a few moments, and it is connected to the warning that immediately follows it, the danger of apostatizing from the, the biblical religion. And so here we have this theme of assembling ourselves, which is really another means of perseverance, another means of persevering in our profession and adherence uh, to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this whole section, which is dealing with a call to faith, call to perseverance, this is plugged in as one of the components that brings about one of the means that the Lord uses for that uh, perseverance. Well, we'll note three things this morning as we consider uh, verse 25. First of all, uh, gathering habitually. So first of all, gathering habitually, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. So you'll note immediately that there are two sides to the coin. It's stated negatively, not forsaking. And then you have, you know, the positive reference of actually assembling ourselves together. You can look at it from both angles, not forsaking, not abandoning, not deserting the assembling, and then assembling ourselves together. That, that word is actually in the Greek, one word, double compound. And part of the word is where we get the word synagogue from. And it, it's this idea of gathering together. So not forsaking the gathering of ourselves together. It's speaking about something physical in the first instance. People actually have to come together in the same place at the same time for the same purpose. But it means more than that, of course. There's the spiritual exercise that, that such occasions uh, provide for us. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. The fact is that men do not forsake what they love. No one forsakes what they love. A mother doesn't forsake the children that she loves. You know, a spouse doesn't forsake their husband or wife whom they dearly love. And the fact is that the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Why? Because of Christ's love 
for his people, for his bride, and his love to be with and among his people. We have the repeated promises that is given to us from Genesis to Revelation over and over and over again, where God is coming to his people and saying, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So that's kind of broad background, you know, the context of Christ's pledge to his people not to forsake us. But you'll notice in places like Psalm 87, verse 2, which you know well, that the Lord loves, he loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob, right? Public worship preferred before private worship. He loves the gates of Zion, the place where his people are collectively assembled more than all else. Yes, he loves them uh, in their tents and places and towns, uh, wherever they're worshiping and calling upon the name of the Lord. But he loves the gates of Zion. The Lord loves it. And for that reason, he's given us his promised presence. Christ says, I love the assembling of my, of my people. I love to be among my people who are gathered together. And he gives the promise of his own presence, even where only two or three are gathered together in his name. He promises and has never broken it that he himself will be there in their midst. The Lord loves the assembling of his people and he does not forsake with his own presence. Wherever his people are gathered together, he is always present, has never been absent from a single worship service, any place, anywhere, anytime, among any part of the world or any people throughout history. The Lord has a perfect record of attendance in his own house. Why? Because he loves it. He loves his people. He loves to be with his people. And so what's happening here is the heart, what's being described in verse 25 is the heart of Christ in the heart of the Christian. The heart of Christ himself being worked out in the heart of the Christian. Because we sing elsewhere in the Psalms something similar to what we've already referenced, but in this case regarding the Christian's own experience. So we read from Psalm 122, I joyed when to the house of God go up, they said to me. This is for David <clears throat> a cause of joy. The prospects of going up to the public assembly of his people brought him tremendous joy. And it was that joy, his love to be standing within Jerusalem, to be standing in the house of God, to be engaged in the ordinances of God. His love for that and his exquisite joy in all of that is what drew him. It's what drew his heart. It was a joy, not a drudgery. It was a delight to him. And so we see that ultimately this, this business in verse 25 about gathering habitually is in the first instance a heart issue. Not a feet issue. It's not a problem with our feet not going where they're supposed to go. But it is a heart issue. Our heart not being at times where our heart should be. Hung in heaven. Hung, as it were, on all that belongs to Christ. A heart that is impassioned with love for him. 
And because of a love for his person, there is in the Christian heart a love to be with him. I mean, what, what spouse can say, I love my spouse, but I'm not interested in being with them. And you say, well, this is absolutely foolishness. This makes absolutely no sense at all. To pledge love for the Lord Jesus Christ entails a love to be where he is, to be with him, near him, to behold him, to hear his own voice, to see with the eyes of the soul his own glory. Right? It's love for him that lies behind this and love to be with his people. You know, how does the Lord describe the church and describe the people of God as the apple of his eye, as the, the great ones, the delight of the earth, and so on and so forth? And God's people recognize that. They get it. We think like the Lord thinks. We think his thoughts after him. And that means that the Christian loves to be with the people of God. All of their warts and problems and weaknesses and inadequacies and all of the other, they're my people. Yes, they may, they may be off at times, and there may be things that are, you know, less, less savory than others, but they're my people. And more importantly, they're his people. And so we love them, and we delight to be with the Lord's people. And that love for Christ and love for his people lies behind this, right? The, the gathering of ourselves together is, as you well know, a microcosm of heaven. The Lord has left in this world a foretaste of the world that is yet to come. Here Christ comes and he dwells among us. He's here this morning, dwelling among us in the congregation, revealing himself, showing himself through the lattice. He's coming and showing himself in his glory, speaking to us. We're hearing the voice of the shepherd in order that we might follow him. Well, if it's a microcosm of heaven... And a person concludes, I don't desire to be there. It is tantamount to saying, I don't desire to go to heaven. Because this is a little taste of what heaven will be like. Dwelling in the immediate presence of Christ, beholding his glory with resurrected bodies, assembled with the totality of the invisible church. All the elect of God in glory. You think of how excited people get, children, how excited you get when there's going to be a family gathering, right? You think, well, the family's getting together and there's going to be special food and there's going to be all sorts of things. You're going to see cousins and aunts and uncles or whoever that you haven't seen in a while and so on. And there's a, there's a buzz of excitement about the prospects of a family gathering, perhaps. But this is something far greater than that. Not just flesh and blood. This is bound together in the gospel. This is the king himself coming. The king of glory is coming among us. And we're with his, his sons and daughters, his people, and his visible church, and so on. What it means is that you, you, you can't love the Lord Jesus Christ and not love his church. That is an impossibility. You cannot love Jesus Christ and not love his bride. Love his church. Love his ordinances that he's appointed. It's impossible. And so there's something that lies behind all of this in the heart of, of the believer. And he tells us here in verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, as the, 
as the margin says, custom of some is, as the habit of some is. And so there are two, two types of people. He says there are those who are in the habit of gathering together, and there are those in the habit of neglecting it. Those who are in the habit of gathering and those who are in the habit of failing to, to gather together. The gathering of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is one of the most basic responsibilities of a Christian. There is much, much, much more to the Christian life, but there are few things that are more basic to being a Christian than the responsibility of gathering together as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's more, but this is the basics. And you can't read the book of Acts and miss it because the book of Acts describes them, not, you know, chapter after chapter after chapter is preaching all the time. Every time you turn around, they're preaching. But everywhere in the book of Acts, right, they're, they're, they're together. The people are coming together. They're gathering together in this place and that place and this circumstance and another circumstance. They're coming together. We saw in Acts 5, even in the midst of a lot of persecution and difficulty and all of the opposition that's taking place, again at the end of that chapter, and daily, every day, in the temple and in every house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ, right? This is woven through the book of Acts. Habitually gathering, gathering habitually before the Lord. And this has been a pattern throughout the, the history of the church. We go back to the patristic era, they had church every day. In various portions of that history, you come to the Reformation, Calvin in Geneva, they had public worship every single day. You know, Calvin's preaching every day. You have, even to the present hour, I mean, in, in South Korea, the Presbyterians in South Korea still gather every day for public worship. They get up super early in the morning and they go to church before they go to work or go about their other business, right? This is not uncommon. And while it, can, it can't be implemented everywhere and in all occasions, at least gives us some backdrop for, for, for expectations and so on. The point is in verse 25, this is non-optional. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. This is not a take it or leave it matter. This is not something that is on the table for consideration. The Lord says it must be. And of course, this is a biblical doctrine. It's confessional doctrine. It's also a doctrine that's been exemplified in Presbyterian and Reformed churches throughout the world. Not just ours, but all sorts, all stripes and, and types of, of Presbyterian and Reformed people. I mean, in, the, in various points in, in American Presbyterianism, this has certainly been the case. I mean, you're a Christian. Of course, you go to church. When the doors are open, you're there. You're in the public assembly. Every opportunity you can possibly be there and so on. I mean, it's true in the, in the Dutch Reformed churches, right? The Dutch Reformed churches to the present day have 100% attendance rates. Morning worship, evening worship on the Sabbath, and on other days that are appointed for such. It's, it's expected, Right? It's true, of course, you know, in our own church in Scotland, for example, if not um, otherwise prevented providentially, every communicant is at every prayer meeting. If you're a communicant member, you're at the prayer meeting. It's a matter of expectation. It'd be shock and awe for that not to be 
for, the, for that not to be the case. And so you know, historically, of course, you have within American Presbyterianism, Dutch Reformed churches, you know, the European Presbyterians and so on, there was a connection between the pew and the table. Not in the pew, not at the table. Right? How, how can you not be in the pew and carelessly, I'm not saying for good reasons, but for carelessly neglecting the, the public gathering of God's people and then just come to the table. It's, it's inconceivable, right? It's, it's unthinkable in the thinking of historically of most Reformed folk. The point in verse 25 is this is an obligation. It's not, not optional. And so as a, as a congregation, as a presbytery, and so on and so forth, we ought to be cultivating this biblical ethos. We ought to be cultivating it. You know, this biblical practice. Some of us have the benefit of having grown up this way, where you were always, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't something you, you thought about. It's something that was so much ingrained and woven into your life that it was a living part of who you were. Not all of us have that benefit, but we need to be cultivating this biblical ethos. This is who we are. We are the Lord's people. We are Christians. And of course, the Sabbath stands alone. It is one day in seven set apart and the whole day in public and private exercises of, of worship. So the whole day is to be devoted exclusively to the Lord. So the Lord's day, well, of course, there. There's no option. The priority of public worship on the Sabbath day trumps all else, right? It is the pivotal force in framing the piety of, of God's people. But we should be looking, as the early church did, and as the church has historically for other opportunities as well. And we have, for example, our prayer meeting on Wednesday nights where we, you know, more means of grace and singing the Psalms and prayer and preaching and, and so on and so forth. And the question that many ask is, you know, do I have to? Do, do I have to go to the prayer meeting? But the question reveals the problem, doesn't it? Because we started with saying this is heart issue, ultimately. And so the very question itself is, is betraying. Do I have to? Right? There's, where there's an appetite for love for Christ, love for his people, love for his ordinances, love for the things of God, love for the public gathering, and so on, where there's a spiritual appetite for these things, the question is rather, do I have to be absent? My hunger pains are there. I have an appetite. I'm desirous. But do I have to miss because of, you know, one thing or another in, in, the, Lord's, in the Lord's providence? You know, there are those who, will, who would never miss work for what they would miss church for. So you're going to go to work regardless of how you feel, but you'll absent yourself from church. Do you remember the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, you cannot serve both God and mammon? It's impossible. To prioritize mammon over the Lord, that's a problem. That's a heart problem. And the Lord is merciful in coming to us and giving us his word and instructing us because we can say, wow, that's a blind spot. And the Lord's exposing me. And so my, the response is to come under it, receive the Lord's word, and repent and turn to the Lord in these things. 
Right? That's what he's calling us to. What a merciful, what a liberating thing and blessing that is. Granted, there are legitimate reasons. We can be sick, sick, and we're sick in bed. And of course, we're not going to work. We're not going to store. We're not going to church. We're not going anywhere, right? We're, we're genuinely, you know, laid low and so on. And there are other things that prohibit us. You may live, you know, a million miles away from church. There's no way for you to get to the Wednesday prayer meeting because of distance, or you have to work on Wednesday evening at that time or something. We, 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 we recognize that. We, there, are legitimate, there are legitimate things. But the problem is not those things. It's all of the excuses. I'm not up to it. I don't feel very good. I don't, I don't have a lot of energy you know, looking for excuses. And it's not, it's, not just the, it's not just the excuses that's the problem or the, the end result that is the problem. I have a lot of pressures. I'm under, you know, these various constraints and so on and so forth. It's peeling all that back and saying, okay, Lord, where am I? Like, where, where am I? Where, where am I? Where's my head? What am I thinking? What am I feeling? Where's my affection? Where's my conscience in all of these things? You know, what's, what's going on? When, you, when you're tempted to neglect the reading of your Bible, you realize something's going on, bells and whistles are going off. It's the same thing with the public assembly of, of the Lord's people, not looking for excuses. He's saying, as is the habit or custom of some, right? There's to be a habit that's the contrary, the habit of gathering ourselves together. The wonderful thing about a habit is that it becomes so ingrained, you don't have to think about it. It's who you are. It becomes a part of your very person, right? You, you look in your blind spot before you change lanes. But that's a habit. You don't even think about it. You don't think, well, should I look at my blind spot or not or whatever else? You could have been driving for 10 minutes and you won't even remember the fact that you've looked in your blind spot 10 times. You're not even conscious of it anymore because it's so ingrained, you know, or you brush your teeth before you go to bed. You don't say, well, should I brush my teeth? I don't feel like brushing. You know, you just brush your teeth. You never think about it, right? You do it. It's part of your routine. It's part of your, it's built into your habit and so, habits and so on. He's saying, this is how it's to be, right? The gathering habitually. And ultimately, the, at the end of the day, it's, 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 it's this, the Lord's coming. You know, the, the question for me is, is the Lord going to be there? Well, that's, that's all I need to know. The Lord's going to be there. The Lord's going to show up. And you don't? The Lord considered it a priority to be here. And we didn't. It's a problem. No, we want to be with him. We want to see him. We want to draw near to him. We want to hear him. And so on. And so there's a gathering that is as habitual. And for those who are unconverted, how much more is this necessary? Right? To be where, where are people converted? They're converted under the preaching of the word of God, chiefly. Right? It's through the foolishness of preaching, the Bible says, that men are saved. This is the chief means of grace that the Lord uses. And yet we live in a day in which many American Presbyterians think, well, the church is only for those who are converted and we, everybody else just needs to go, you know, go somewhere else. You know, we don't want them here and so on. What are you kidding me? We want the entire community here and in other churches, not just ours. We wish that all the neighborhoods were empty on the Lord's Day and packed into the churches. I mean, in, in the day, Calvin said that he, he would be shocked if 20% of the people in his congregation were converted. 
In the days of the Second Reformation, the whole society, by and large, is going to church. And vast numbers of them were unconverted. It's been true historically. What does that mean? It means for you who are unconverted, you need to stay right where you are. You need to be under the means of grace, under the preaching of God's word. And that's been the case historically in Reformed churches. You know, outside of the church of which there is no ordinary way or means of salvation, as the confession says. This is the ordinary means to be under, to be in the place where Christ is coming and showing himself in the, as Christ crucified and calling men to faith and working by his spirit to save sinners and so on. We ought to desire to have all our neighbors and everybody else we can get under the roof to hear Christ and to hear his word proclaimed. So there's, there's gathering habitually. Secondly, gathering productively. Secondly, gathering productively, the text goes on, but exhorting one another. So, not forsaking the gathering, but exhorting. You'll notice the words one another in italics because they're not in the Greek. So it's, but exhorting. The one another is, is rightly supplied because he, it's carrying on the thought from verse 24. Consider one another to provoke. Here it's exhorting. Uh, with, with one another. So verse 24, provoke or stir up one another, leads or is connected to exhorting one another. This is one of the ways in which we stir up or provoke one another. And edification comes in the gathering of God's people through several means, doesn't it? We know that preaching, for example, is one of the primary places for exhortation. Second Timothy 4 verse 2, preach the word be instant in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. So exhortations taking place in the, the preaching of the word of God. But it's true in all of the other ordinances as well. We're hearing exhortation in the reading of scripture. And as Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 say, we glean from one another in the singing of the Psalms, right? We're teaching and admonishing one another. In, in the collective corporate singing of God's praise, there's exhortation that is found there as well. But in addition to that, of course, we have personal exhortation. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. This personal exhortation. And you'll note how this picks up on, we, we've seen it several times already in the book of Hebrews, but let me point you back to an important one. In chapter 3, where he says in verse 12, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So perseverance is behind that. Notice verse 13. But exhort one another daily. Right? It's the same theme. While it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, for we are made partakers of Christ, and so on. But exhort one another daily. You have this elsewhere uh, in the New Testament. I'll give you one other example in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. Here we have reinforced what we saw in verse 24. That is, believers having a sense of personal responsibility. Not optional, 
but a sense of personal responsibility, which is reinforced here, for our brethren. There's a debt owed to them in our service of them, right? And it's expressed in this place in reference to our speech. A word in season, serving the Lord's people, supporting the Lord's people through a word in season. I mean, often this can be even the casual offhand comments at times, right? You know, I was reading this week, it's fascinating. And I, you know, this is something that I learned or the Lord showed me. I heard, you know, I heard this, I was listening to and so on and so forth. You have no idea how much help I personally have received from this. You know, I hear people telling me or I hear them telling someone else and I overhear it. Man, that did my soul good. That's exactly what I needed. It lights upon something that I'm dealing with or thinking about or wrestling with. And it's, I have benefited tremendously from it, right? So even those sorts of things are true, but it, but it can become far more specific than that as well. You know, one of the women come, comes to the other woman and says, look, you know, my children are driving me crazy. I, I'm going to lose my mind, right? Here, here's an expression of vulnerability and openness and like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm having some, I'm having some difficulties here. Or, you know, a man comes and says, I'm really struggling at work, man. I'm under massive pressure at work right now. And I'm, I'm really feeling, I'm feeling the squeeze. I'm struggling and so on. You know, there's perfect opportunities here to be of service and support to one another, to be exhorting one another, persevere. How do we respond to those things? The first thing we do is we think. First of all, we hear what they're saying and we actually think about it. You know, we, we may be, while we're talking to them, praying for the Lord, give me something to give them, to be of some encouragement to them. But we ultimately speak, not just kind of quickly speaking platitudes that are of very little help. You know, it may mean asking questions. You know, kids drive me crazy. What, what in particular? I'm, you know, you express sympathy. I'm genuinely sorry. I mean, you're under a lot of, you're under heavy load. I'm not, I can see what you're saying. I feel it. You know, there's sympathy there. You care. You actually care about what they're, you're not just spitting stuff at them. You care. But then you might ask questions, which also shows care. What, what, what specifically? Like, how's it working? Like, where, where do you find yourself most perplexed? You know, what is it? What times a day or what circumstances with the kids are? Well, I can't do everything. I'm trying to do everything and there's 50 million things. I can't do it at all. Well, you've just gathered data. You've shown care. But then it also sets you up to be able to, to think about how to be an encouragement, you know? You might say, listen, one thing that helped me was you need to pare back. You can't do everything. That's why you're not doing anything is because you're trying to do everything. And so you need, you know, help me to think, okay, what are the four most important things that have to happen? I'm just going to settle on that. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, seek to, with the Lord's help, focus on those things. And then, you know, don't forget to pray, 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 pray. You know, Lord, help me. Give me the strength just for the next five minutes. You know, Lord, help me to see what, what's going on in the heart of this child that's creating this thing. You know, what am I missing? Show me, Lord, what it is. How can I help them or whatever? You know, I can't communicate with my, my spouse. You might say, oh, I'm so sorry, yada, yada. But then also you might say, well, one thing that helped me was that text that says, be slow to speak and quick to listen. That, you know, communication is both throwing the ball and catching the ball. And maybe the thing that helped me the most was learning to catch the ball well. 
So that means when you're speaking to your spouse, you're actually focused on listening to them. What are they saying? And if they're doing the same, I'm eager to understand what's going on in your head and heart, right? And you, you're saying, well, you know, this is what I hear you saying, and so on and so forth. No, no, that's not what I'm trying to say. Okay, thank you. You know, and they explain again, finally, oh, this is what I hear you saying, you're saying, and they say, yes, that's it, right? You've, you've caught the ball, and they're catching the ball that you're throwing. Well, that was helpful, you know? I mean, there's, there's things like that where the Lord is giving us opportunity for sympathy, counsel, exhortation, support, service, and so on, to be of meaningful help or say, you know, I don't have the answer, but you know what? I am going to make a deliberate point to pray about this, and I'm going to think, and I'm going to keep my eye out when I'm reading to see if I can find something that might be helpful, right? There's humility in all of this. There has to be, because you yourself need things from the Lord. You need things from the Lord. You're not good to go. You're not fine by yourself. You need things from the Lord, and he has appointed means to provide them. And it's connected to the gathering of ourselves together, product, spiritual productivity when we're gathered together. He appoints means to provide. The problem is this. When we neglect the, the gathering of ourselves together, you have a need. The Lord has appointed a means to provide and you're not there to receive it. You're gone. And then you complain that your needs aren't being met and how you're struggling. Well, you're not making use of the means the Lord's given. Right? How often has, have, have pastors felt, you know, they're, they're preparing a sermon and they're, they're in the text, they're digging and so on, and it dawns on them as they've, you know, kind of finished preparing. This actually, this is going to be super helpful for so-and-so. I know they're struggling in this. This, is, this may be of helpful, help to them. And they come to church to preach the sermon, and of course the person isn't there to receive it. Right? That sort of thing happens, or it may be a conversation that took place while you were absent that would have been precisely suited to your, your circumstances. Right? The point is there needs to be productivity in our gathering together. Exhortation is spiritual food. It's spiritual food, whether it's from the pulpit, whether it's in pastoral care, whether it's in mutual ministry of one another, at the end of the day, the less food you get, the less nourishment you get, the less growth you get. Less food, less nourishment, less growth and grace. We're not to be forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. How often, you know, have you and I both had circumstances where you're struggling, you know, and I mean, how many times have I, I've, I've been home you know, absolutely in bed, completely dysfunctional. But then there have been more times than I could ever count, and you know it, where I've preached sick as well. And how many times have, have you and I come to the public worship of God when it was difficult, and we said afterward, wow, I am so glad I didn't miss what the Lord had prepared for me. Right, that actually is positive reinforcement of this habitual gathering of ourselves together. Hastening on, thirdly, gathering earnestly, verse 25, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Gathering earnestly and so much the more. Yes, uh, there's all, there are things that are always, these are things that are always to be happening, but even more in light of the day approaching. Right, he's speaking actually of an increased 
He's saying, we're going to gather together even more. We're, we're increasing, right? There's a dead earnestness that he's describing, gathering earnestly. Well, how do you fuel this earnestness? How do we, how does the Lord put earnestness within us? Well, he does so with an incentive. He does so with a motivation. He does so by something we see. And this is important. It's something we see. We must see clearly in order to do rightly. What is it that we see? As ye see the day approaching. It's the approaching day. So what day is that? That is the last day. Verse 27, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation. He goes on all the way through you know, verse 30. You know, vengeance belongeth to, he's speaking about the day. He's speaking about the day that he so often references that they all know and are very acquainted with, right? It's the last day, the day that we wait for, the day that we're looking for, the day that we're constantly anticipating. He says that day is approaching and it's closer today than it was yesterday and last Sabbath and, you know, a month ago or 2023 or, you know, a decade ago. It's approaching. It's coming as evidenced in all of the Bible and evidenced in all of Scripture. And so he's saying this earnestness comes from seeing in our heart and mind the, the approaching day, the last day. So in other words, you can tie all of this in with the sermon from Wednesday night. So just take cut and paste. You know, what you heard on Wednesday evening, the sermon about pressing toward the mark and all that that includes plugs in hand and glove to what we have here in our text. We're to think often. We are to meditate upon the last day and, and the eternity that is to follow. It brings us back to seeing what matters most. Because we can, we can determine that by what will count then, on the last day, on the day of judgment, you know, in, in all of the glory that is to follow. What will matter to me? What will matter to anyone on that day? You know, whether I was pampering myself a little because I felt out of sorts and therefore just stayed home or, you know, whatever. What's going to matter on that day? How will we assess life? from the vantage point of the last day, right? This brings us back to our priorities, to seeking first the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God comes in his word and he provides this revelation of future mysteries, of, of, of telling us what the, the last day is coming, the day of judgment, the day, the final day and the verdict and all the, the glory that is to follow and so on. He, he reveals all of that as a spur to present duties. All of that could have been reality and hidden from us. And we discovered it when we got there. But the Lord's revealed it to us ahead of time among, for, for many reasons, among which are to be a spur, an encouragement, an incentive, a motivation to the very present duties, the duties of today, so that we're more careful, more watchful, more prayerful, more sober, more patient, more believing right here, right now. Because the shadow of the day that's coming is being cast over our present circumstances. And we view life in light of it. You know, it makes all of the tip, you know, some of the objections that you hear people make. 
makes them foolish, right? I can profit. I can profit just as well at home as I can in gathering together with God's people. You know, I can read at home. I can read the Bible. I got the same Bible at home as you got at church. You know, I can read books and, and other things and so on and so forth. It's a contradiction of God's command. It is an attempt to be wiser than God and to tell him he's mistaken as to what you need and what you don't need. It is pride. It's pride to think that we don't need what God says we need. What we need is submission, submission to the Lord. Submission to the Lord in light of the verdict of the last day. And the last day, am I going to be, you know, um, concerned about the things that I'm so concerned about right now? Or am I going to be more concerned about the fact that I prioritize the things that matter most? And seeking first his kingdom and the public assembly of his people, right? This, is, this all fits within the trajectory of perseverance. It all fits within what's going to follow the preservation from apostasy. How? Because every step taken is in one of two directions. Every step is either in the direction from the Lord or to the Lord. When we forsake the assembling of ourselves together, it's a step away from the Lord. When we do assemble, it's a step to the Lord. And so it does fit within this trajectory of the warning, the solemn warning, heavy warning, against apostasy because forsaking the assembling ultimately leads to forsaking the Lord, the Lord, which ultimately leads to being forsaken by the Lord, as we'll see in what follows. And so it is the heart of the matter is what we love, who we love. Loving the Lord Jesus Christ, right? This is the heart of the matter, the matter of the heart. A love for Jesus Christ, to be near him, to be with him, to hear him, to see him, to worship and adore him. Love for his presence. Love for the presence of Christ. He's promised it. He'll be here whether you're here or not. He will be here. But it's our love for his presence. It's our love for his people. They're dependent on us. God uses us for their benefit. We're dependent on them. We need the benefit that we derive from their, their life and ministry. So we love his people as well. And we love his kingdom. We're going to seek first his kingdom above all and beyond all else. We're going to seek first Christ's kingdom and his righteousness. Why are you doing that? Why are you seeking that? Because you love it. You love his kingdom. And you love all that pertains to it. And so there's gathering earnestly. Gathering habitually is, is where the passage uh, uh, begins in verse 25. Gathering habitually, but then gathering productively, exhorting one another. And fire in our bellies earnestly, so much the more, as you see the day approaching. Let's stand for prayer. O Lord, our God in heaven, we confess with the psalmist that there is one thing, one thing chiefly that we've desired, and that is for all days of our life to dwell in the house of God, 
and to behold the beauty of thy holiness. O Lord, we're thankful that we're given such privileges. Who are we to be invited? Who are we to be permitted to gather in such a place and in the audience of such a king? O Lord, give us, we pray, an increase of love, devotion for our Redeemer. Give us, O Lord, a love for his ordinances. Give us a love for thy people. We pray that it would fill us and fuel us. Give us a sight of the the last day that is yet to come. Help us, O Lord, not to be dis diverted and distracted from it. To meditate upon these things. Grant fruitfulness from it. O Lord, glorify thyself, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen.